Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 28. Then Peter began to say to him, that is to Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. And Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In the 10th chapter of Mark, the servant has dealt with the problem of divorce and the request for an interpretation about marriage and divorce in verses 1 through 12. The request for the blessing of the children in verses 13 through 16. The request for information about eternal life that began with the rich young ruler in verse 17 and continues all the way to this particular passage and ends in verse 31. Now Peter is convinced that he and the other apostles would receive a special reward for doing what the rich young ruler either couldn't do or wouldn't do. And we discover a new motive. God does in fact reward separation and sacrifice and surrender. But our motive isn't simply for what we're going to get in the end, but the desire to know and to love and to follow Jesus. Many who are first in their own eyes will wind up last in God's eyes. And so the passage begins with a great reason. Look again in verse 28. Then Peter began to say, see, we have left all and followed you. It's okay. I constantly remind you to ask questions of the passage. What prompts Peter's statement? Shock? The need for assurance? We have left all. Is that hyperbole? We know that when Jesus dies and rises from the dead, Peter will say to his companions, hey, let's go back to the Galilee and let's go fishing. I wonder if he stashed his pole somewhere. I suspect that in Matthew's parallel passage in chapter 19, verse 27 We're given a little bit of clue. Uh, We're given an insight into Peter's state of mind. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, it it includes the question, quote, What then will there be for us, unquote? In other words, Peter's asking the question, What's in it for me? Will there be something for us? We have done what the rich young ruler couldn't do or wouldn't do. Peter's focus seems to be on material values rather than spiritual values. And I want to bring something to your attention, and that is that Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter or we're not given an indication that he's unhappy with the statement or the question. 
Apparently, the Lord wants to deal with the issue and leaving all, by the way, didn't mean abandoning personal responsibility. Jesus will make a provision for his mother, even at the cross in John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27, when he says to John, behold your mother. We also know that. The apostles will still continue to meet the needs of their family, their wives, their children. Some have suggested that leaving all means an absolution of past obligation, a shirking from present responsibilities. No, leaving all and following Jesus means centering your life and your possessions and your possibilities on the Lord Jesus Christ to serve him and to serve his plans and serve his purposes and serve his people. Stephen Curtis Chapman sings the song. We will abandon it all for the sake of the call. Peter and the apostles have left all to follow Jesus. And what a great testimony that is. Just like for you, for many of you, where you've turned your back on what this world has to offer and you've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. Leaving all and following Jesus becomes the starting point and the basis for reward. It was C.T. Studd who wrote, quote, if Jesus Christ be God and if he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him, unquote. And that's true. All of a sudden, whatever sacrifice or surrender we make, it pales in comparison to both the sacrifice and the surrender and the reward. So in verse 29, Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, and we've looked at that text before, and we know what it means from John's gospel and Mark. When Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, it's his way of saying Truly, truly, or he wants to draw special attention. It doesn't mean that everything that he said up until this point isn't true, but he wants to draw specific attention. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, I want to draw particular attention to what I'm about to say to you. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or or father or mother or wife or children or lands For my sake and the gospels for some coming to Jesus really is a great sacrifice. Identification with Jesus will bring repudiation from family and friends and culture. I've been all around the world and in various parts of the world. The moment a person decides to identify with Jesus to walk away from their life or their culture or their religion, it invites abandonment and persecution. I've told you the story of when I was in Africa and Kenya and I traveled towards the north, towards the Somali border. And there were a group of pastors who were meeting as they were talking about much of the challenges and persecutions that they were facing. And one particular young man was in a madras. He was in a Muslim school in order to become an imam. And he told the story of how he had come into a right relationship with God and had accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior. And his father wrote him a letter. And in the letter he wrote, the father said to him, the next time we meet, bring a gun. I know I will. He said, because 
You've broken my heart. Either I will have to kill you or you will have to kill me. You think that there are difficulties associated when you identify with Jesus, with his love and with his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. You might have to turn from a different kind of life. Your wife or your husband might say that we have a different kind of marriage since you've come to Christ. Jesus knew that there would be sacrifice for many. Jesus makes it clear that the basis of sacrifice is identification with him. And with the gospel, it's not the leaving of one church for another church. Warren Wearsby wrote a book entitled 10 Power Principles for Christian Service. In his outline and table of contents, he writes that the foundation of ministry is character and the nature of ministry is service and the motive for ministry is love and the measure of ministry is sacrifice and the authority of ministry is submission and the purpose of ministry is the glory of God. Wearsby continues that the tools of ministry are the word of God and prayer and the privilege of ministry is the growth and the power of the ministry is the Holy Spirit. And then the model of ministry is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. What then is involved in being a true follower of Jesus? Well, It involves partaking of his divine nature. No wonder the scriptures teach that you must be born again and you must be born from on high. It involves resting upon the infinite merit of his satisfying atonement as the only basis of acceptance by God. It means sitting at the feet of Jesus in the position of a humble learner and a persistent follower. It must include a willingness to follow Jesus in humility and persistence and intimacy and exclusivity. And now Jesus turns our attention to the rewards of being a follower of Jesus. In verse 30, look what it says. He shall receive a hundredfold or who shall receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands With persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus promises a temporal reward. He also promises an eternal reward. I don't know if you've looked at your 401k lately or your investments lately. What if a financial advisor offered you 10 thousand percent on your return and he could guarantee it who wouldn't take it up Jesus is offering a ten thousand percent return on investment what does this mean does it mean how some people have, have, have interpreted? Some people will get up in front of you and they'll say, if you sow into this ministry, for every a dollar you put in the agape box, God's going to give you a hundred dollars. That's pretty much nonsense, isn't it? 
If that were true, then I would take an offering. I would give it to him. I would get a hundredfold return. What person in their right mind wouldn't give everything that they have? And if the person really believed it, then why wouldn't he practice it? Is this what it's talking about? Is it talking some crass um, give to get scheme? Is this some sort of religious Ponzi scheme? I'm going to suggest to you that this isn't that at all. What does it mean? Literal physical properties in this life? Probably not. What it does mean is access to hundreds of home accommodations from hundreds of like minded brothers and sisters around the Roman Empire who would offer friendship and fellowship that would enrich lives. And I want you to note something that that's exactly how the early church interpreted it. That the pain and the problems, the sacrifice and the submission and the persecutions, when you leave someone, you embrace a whole host of like-minded people. I've had, again, the privilege of being all around this great big world. In Mexico, there are homes where I can go. Central and South America, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, in India. Once a person understands that you know and love and believe and follow the same Jesus, they open up their hearts and they open up their minds and they open up their resources. Now, I want to point something else out to you. Note what Jesus says. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers. You know, what's conspicuous by their absence. Jesus doesn't say father, because guess what? You only have one father, your father in heaven. And he doesn't say wife. Because God knows you can only deal with one woman in a lifetime. So he's not even for a moment suggesting that you abandon your wife for a hundred more wives. The lands that he speaks of are countries around the globe which are claimed for Jesus as King and Lord. And it's hard to think about other lands unless we're willing to leave our own shore. But God knows and Jesus knows that Peter, James, John and the rest of the apostles are going to embark on an adventure. Thomas is going to go as far as India. Matthew is going to go to Greece. Mark himself is going to eventually find himself in Egypt and Alexandria. The believer understands exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is laying down God's principle of giving and sacrifice and stewardship. We understand that we're to seek first the kingdom of God. No wonder the New Testament says if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. The picture is a picture of God giving to us and then we give to him. We work in order to give to God and provide for our families and those who are in need. And the Lord sees to it that the believer receives more in order to give more, to spread the gospel and meet the needs of others. One Bible writer says, quote, the whole idea is that the believer never sees an end to what he or she receives from God. The giving and receiving goes on and on, never ending the resources, unending, never ceasing, unquote. Mark's gospel alone adds with persecutions, meta, diagmon. In Matthew, it's omitted. In Luke, it's omitted. The readers of Mark's gospel were facing great persecutions at the hands of the Roman officials. 
Remember who Mark's gospel is written to. Romans, citizens, slaves, people who are hearing about Jesus, but they understand that with relationship and fellowship with Jesus comes difficulty. Jesus promised fellowship with other brothers. He promises fellowship with other sisters. And paradoxically, that fellowship will include the fellowship of suffering with one another. It might come as a shock to you and a surprise to you for Jesus to place under the category of reward persecutions. When I've heard... Kenneth Hagin or Kenneth Copeland preach from this gospel. He never talks about persecutions and a hundredfold reward. Jesus is honest. Jesus is a little too honest for some preachers in some churches. Peter would later write in 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The expression reproached for the name of Jesus means the experience of persecution and suffering, of experiencing abuse and ridicule for Jesus. When a disciple suffers for Jesus, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon that individual. The idea is that there is the experience of a special presence, a special closeness, a tender intimacy, a oneness that becomes almost impossible to explain. The Holy Spirit imparts a deep and a profound sense of the presence of God on behalf of the person being persecuted. And then all of a sudden you realize God is here and Jesus is here. That the abuse, that the persecution is resulting in the reality that you're experiencing the presence of God. We are sometimes hard-pressed to understand how that suffering and persecution is lumped into the category of reward. But here comes the special meaning. Jesus reminds us that you experience His power and His presence and His comfort. Most people think about what they have to give up. Or the isolation. The presence of God and identification with Jesus makes suffering and persecution a source of honor and joy. And by the way, that's exactly how it was interpreted by the believers in the first century. They began to understand the blessing and the thrill of being able to identify with Jesus in humility and loss. No wonder Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, not for truly because you've been an idiot. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. And so Jesus makes the the, the reminder that he's watching out for the here and he's also watching out for the later. Jesus promises great reward in heaven. So what are those rewards? Sonship. Daughtership, relationship, 
a constant access to God, the ever presence of Jesus, protection from danger, light instead of darkness. For those who preach the gospel of material prosperity and an easy life, they miss the point. Does this sound like an easy life to you? Does this sound like a broad way or does this sound like a narrow way? And you see, an honest reading of the New Testament finds Jesus being consistent in what he says in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse ten. And so what exactly is the reward that's found in persecutions? The presence of God, the comfort of God, but also perspective. That's what persecution will really provide. Perspective. What is it that you really value? What is it that you think matters? How is it that you can pursue your life getting things and all you're left with is the things that you've gotten? How is it possible that we can acquire things that we will only need on a temporary basis in a substitute for the things that we're going to need for eternity? What is their ultimate value? How much Value do you place on forgiveness of sin? How much value do you place on eternal life? Jesus doesn't use the subject of rewards as a bribe to sweeten the Christian pot. Jesus issues a challenge. Are these rewards simply for being a follower of Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. But Jesus will make it abundantly clear that the balance sheet doesn't always add up the way that you had hoped. Here on the earth. What does the ledger look like? Jesus says, I'm going to give you way more than you want and way more than you can imagine. And in the age to come, look what it says. Read it for yourself. Eternal life. Now, you could run in into trouble here, particularly if you read the verse and, and come to the conclusion. Well, does this mean that we eat? We earn eternal life by forsaking it all, by picking up our cross and following Jesus. And is this reward, the reward that we have for making the choice to follow Jesus? And I got to tell you something. The answer is no. Eternal life is a gift. The Bible says you're saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, lest any person should boast. So how are we to think about this? What if I suggested to you to ask a different question? Will all believers in the eternal state appreciate eternal life to the same degree and in the same way? What do you think? I'm going to suggest to you that there are going to be people there who are going to smell the smoke of hell even as they experience the event of walking into the light. Can you imagine? There's going to be people who are going to go. I thought I was on fire there for a second. You find yourself facing the pearly gates when you know that you should be somewhere else. 
You see, there, there really are going to be two kinds of people. There are going to be those who have a deep and a profound sense of appreciation of what it means to escape hell. And what it means to have a right relationship with the Lord. Jesus promises rewards in this life and in the next life. And look what he says. And in the, in the age to come, the word age is aeonios. And it can mean a certain specific amount of time. But depending on context, it can mean forever. And here it seems to mean forever. Because the life that's described is eternal. Not temporal. Not probationary. This is the kind of life that goes on forever and ever. And Jesus describes the life in John chapter 17, 3, when he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus defines eternal life, not simply in terms of living forever, but in loving forever and being loved forever. So if eternal life means living forever and loving forever, the reason why you can live forever and love forever is because there's a person who loves you forever. And this is why Jesus rises from the dead. And Paul bluntly wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if in this present life our hope is in Jesus and Jesus isn't who he says he is, and the Bible isn't what it claims to be, if it's a fabrication and a hoax, then Christians live in a state of delusion. We have chosen a life of self-denial. We've chosen a life of personal sacrifice. We've chosen a life of following Jesus. We forego the pleasures of this world to embrace a reward in a future world, and it doesn't exist. Or it does. Billy Joel used to sing. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. And only the good die young. I see some of your lips forming the words. Only the good die young. The tragic thing about the song, it's not true. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Song makes perfect sense if it's true. Paul knew that if we have no home to go to, if there's no king at the end of the line, if Jesus isn't there and he doesn't say the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the reward that I provided for you, then you are living a lie and I am living a lie. And we're to be most pitied. But Jesus promises his followers eternal life. Jesus says we will never die. The Bible says that the believer goes to be with Jesus. The Bible says that the body of the believer is raised from the dead. The believer is rewarded. The nature of that reward seems to include crowns. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, we are given a new name. And one of those names is overcomer isn't that a great new name aren't you glad that Jesus hasn't picked out the name loser persistent failure sorry aren't you glad that God has a brand new name for you and it includes all of the things that you're hoping to hear Thomas Akempis, in 
in the 1300s wrote, for a small reward, a man will hurry away on a long journey, while for eternal life, many will hardly take a single step. There are ladies who will get up at three o'clock in the morning for a deal at Kohl's. Yes, not me. (laughs) Hallelujah. Preach it. There are people who will clip coupons for any and all reasons. But people are hard pressed to take one single step towards the cross of Calvary. Towards the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. How sad. The Bible speaks of a number of crowns. The Bible speaks of the crown of life given in James chapter 1 verse 12 and Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 and the crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4, a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8, a crown of rejoicing is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 19 and that crown of joy of rejoicing is received when you see the men and women who have come into a right relationship with God through Christ because of your prayers, because of your persistence, because of your testimony, there there is this vision that, that is given in the Bible that you're standing before God in heaven and there are men and women whose lives you have influenced because you loved them and you told them the truth about Jesus and you gave them an opportunity to hear the truth. The crown of rejoicing is received when we see them, those who are saved. Our crown is described as gold in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, incorruptible in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. And the contrast is with the temporary reward, the the perishable crown received by men and women who want fame now and honor now and glory now and wealth now. But there is envisioned a crown that's given to you and to me. There's even a crown that describes those who just simply love to think about the fact that Jesus Christ will one day show up. You know what all of the crowns given in the New Testament have in common? We wear them in heaven. But they're secured on the the earth. You get them here and you wear them there. No cross. No crown. We're told in the book of Revelation that we will eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God in Revelation chapter two, verse seven, that we won't be hurt by the second death, that we will be given authority over the nations, that we will be arrayed in white garments and our name will not be blotted out of the book of life in Revelation chapter three, verses four and five. We're described as pillars in the temple of God. We go out no more, the Bible says, and God gives us a new name and Revelation chapter 3 verse 12 that's known only to him and whatever the name is and however he whispers it into your ear 
The reward is described in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus says, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne. Now think about that for just a minute. I know some of you are thinking, this must be a fairly large throne. Because if you can sit next to him, and if I can sit next to him, And if every believer in every age, in every generation, has the ability to occupy the throne with King Jesus, how large must that throne be? But in a very real sense, this is the reward that Jesus promises. You will receive in heaven everything that he receives in heaven. The Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth and a new paradise and a new physical condition. We're no longer surrounded by the temptations and the defects of this mortal, sinful, fallen world. We are described as being delivered from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin. And the Bible says no more sea to the Jew The sea was a picture of peril and trouble and restlessness. You see, the Jews were never very good sailors. When they saw the water, they saw something to be feared. If you come from Southern California and you see the water, you see something to delight in. The absence of the sea... A blessing to the Jew, a disaster to the Southern California surfer. But make no mistake about it. The sea serves a function on a temporal earth. Do you realize that the waters of the ocean serve as a kind of a cleansing agent to keep something that's in decay, at least on track? The reason why there's no sea is because there's no such thing as decay in the eternal state. And look what it says in verse 31. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. Now we go all the way back to verse 17. And the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus asking the question, what must I do to have eternal life? And the rich young ruler went away sad. He came to Jesus powerful and prominent and no doubt positioned for great things in this life. So what significance and what future was in store for the motley crew that described themselves as Jesus' disciples? Jesus looks at them. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. The statement is repeated in Matthew 19.30, in Matthew 20, verse 16, in Luke chapter 13, verse 30, in different contexts each time. Someone has said that Jesus turns everything upside down. Someone has said that he takes this thing called the human parade and the people that you think should be at the front of the line, he puts them at the end of the line. The kings and the stars that you would expect would lead the parade find themselves at the end of the parade. The general. 
In this chapter, Jesus has sprinkled paradoxes in every story. And remember what a paradox is. It's something that on the surface looks like it's completely different. But in the end, it is exactly appropriate. Remember, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. When I am weak, then I am strong. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus reminds the religious leaders that the two shall become one. He reminds the disciples that grown-ups are going to have to become like children. Now he says the first will be last. Later he's going to talk about servants being rulers. And then he's going to end the chapter with the poor being rich. How do you explain this? And the Lord Jesus will place upon each person the position that they belong. And that becomes at least in part of the point. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And how will that happen? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, Paul writes, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Jesus. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul writes that you are going to stand before Jesus, and I'm going to stand before Jesus. And some of you might be confused right off the top saying, hey, wait a minute. I thought I thought that if I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, that I would never have to stand before God, that I would never have to give an account of my life. You would be mistaken. You will stand before God. You will not have to give an account for your sin. The moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the sins are forgiven past, present and future. The issue of heaven and hell has been resolved. But the issue of your life hasn't been resolved. If you thought that you could live your life unbeknownst to Jesus. If you thought that you could live your life away from the scrutiny of Jesus, away from the heart of Jesus, away from the judgment of Jesus, you would be mistaken. Reward in God's kingdom are not based on earthly standards like rank or priority or duration of time served or personal merit or even individual sacrifice, but commitment to Jesus and following him faithful. And so the person might say, well, how come the thief on the cross is ahead of me in the line when all he did was die next to Jesus? And it could be because he's faithfully dying next to Jesus. Where we unfaithfully live today, tomorrow, a week, a month, a year, a decade, a lifetime. In the selfishness of our own preoccupation. Does this statement, the first Our last and the last first. Is this a warning to Peter? Is it a warning to you? Is it a warning to me? Again, I want you to put yourself in the text. I want you to become just for a moment Peter. What is Peter thinking at this point? 
If we could crawl into his mind, what might we hear? Is Peter thinking of his own worth? Is he thinking of his own sacrifice? Is he thinking of his own reward? Is he doing the mental calculations? Is he drawing the conclusion that he's going to wind up way high in the reward category? And is that what you're thinking? What are you thinking? The final standard of judgment is the all-seeing and the all-knowing God. And God has entrusted all judgment to Jesus. And the ultimate judgment belongs to God alone who can see the motive of each and every individual's heart. Doesn't it make perfect sense to you that Jesus should be the judge? Because he alone understands every moment of every day of your life. William Barclay writes, quote, it is a warning against all pride. It's a warning that the judgments of heaven may well upset the reputations of earth. You see, pride is the weapon that Satan uses to kill you. On the inside. You see, each and every person is going to be judged on the basis of their attachment or detachment from Jesus. Years ago, I heard the story of a young man who studied a violin under a world-renowned master. And eventually it became time for his first recital. And following each selection, despite the cheers of the crowd... The performer seemed completely dissatisfied and he would play and the people would shout and cheer. And even after the last number, when the shouts became louder and louder, the talented violinist stood watching an old man in the balcony. And slowly the old man rose to his feet. And the frown turned to a smile. And he began to applaud. And a rush of relief came over the young man as he realized that he had honored the one who had taught him. He wasn't interested in the cloud, the crowds or, or their clapping. He was interested in one person's opinion. And the same should be true of you and of me. In the end, it doesn't matter what the pastor thinks. And in the end, it doesn't matter what the deacons think. And in the end, it doesn't matter what the leadership of the church thinks. And in the end, it doesn't matter what this, what this world thinks. Because in the end, you will have to satisfy one Single individual. Jesus reminds Peter and all the other disciples that it's impossible to outgive God and that God has a unique way of settling accounts and reimbursing the saints. And each disciple who had forsaken families were given fellowship with the saints. Each became members of her forever family with innumerable brothers and sisters. And every Christian home in every part of the world became a place of rest and refuge. And the disciples were content to have nothing. 
so that they could have everything. And now we understand what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 22 when he said, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. Because he is the reward. Did it ever occur to you, even for one moment, that everything that you will have, you already possess? In the person of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, you will occupy heaven, you will occupy a throne, and you live forever. No wonder Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 that you're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus because you're already there. I came across a poem, I don't know who wrote it. The author says... Who does God's work will get God's pay. However long may seem the day, however weary be the way, though powers and princes thunder nay. Who does God's word will get God's pay. He does not pay as others pay in gold or land or raiment gay. This is before the homosexual movement. In goods that vanish and decay. But God in wisdom knows a way, and that is sure, let come what may, who does God's work will get God's pay. Are you about your father's business? Do you look to him for your reward? Jesus has given us the sneak peek. Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to each person according to their life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have everything that we've ever wanted and everything that we will ever need in the person of Jesus, at least in those things that matter. Lord, we know that apart from his love, there is no love. Apart from his forgiveness, there is no forgiveness. Apart from his friendship and fellowship, there is no eternal life. And Lord, I pray for that person whose heart is empty. Lord, I pray that you would fill it with the knowledge of your goodness. For the person whose heart is guilty... Lord, I pray that you would extend the invitation for them to know you. Lord, I pray for that man, that woman, that he or she, in the quietness of their own heart, would ask the question, what's going to happen to me? What does my future look like? What does eternal life hold for me? Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person that they would turn from their sin and that they would receive the, the hope and the mercy and the grace and the love that's found only in the person of Jesus. And that, Lord, we would come to grips with the reward that we will have, we already have, and the absence of the reward perhaps can change. That, Lord, we could have fresh crowns because we look to you 
the author and the finisher of our faith. We rejoice that Jesus is coming. We rejoice that you use us in the smallest way possible in order to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.